0: Good morning, everybody. It's Wednesday, April twenty first, twenty twenty one, and the DC Kin Care Alliance podcast is back. We've been really busy over the last number of months of twenty twenty one, so we didn't have a chance to do the podcast. But we're really excited to be back. I'm Marla Spindell, Executive Director of DC Kin Care Alliance, and I'm joined by my colleague Stephanie McQuillan, Deputy Director. So thank you for joining us today. We wanted to tell you a little bit about what we've been up to. We've been really busy with representing clients in court for custody, domestic violence, and other cases to ensure that children are safe staying with relative caregivers in D.C. We've also filed four additional federal lawsuits challenging D.C.'s discriminatory practices with respect to diversion or hidden foster care that we'll talk more about later. We also have done four community information sessions about what we do with the D.C. Court Self-Help Center, the D.C. Family Success Centers, the D.C. Children's Hospital Child Protection and Advocacy Center, and Mary Center. We also conducted a Raise Me Up group for wider circle, highlands, dwelling, public housing community. And we have been doing some other advocacy. Stephanie has testified before the D.C. Council at the Child and Family Services Agency oversight hearing on issues related to kinship families. She also testified at the Department of Human Services oversight regarding TANF, SNAP, and other benefit and related issues for kinship families. Our Relative Caregiver Community Board is still active and engaged, and we're still meeting every month to discuss kinship family issues, and the board applied for a special grant from the Greater Community Foundation for an oral history project and accompanying montage about what family means to them and what kinship families look like. So we're in the middle of working on that. We're really excited to have been awarded that grant, and we're really excited to share the outcomes for that project when it's ready. We also are now at 19 members, raising 24 children. So it's a growing and powerful group. Today, we wanted to talk about the CFSA oversight hearing that happened in February of 2021. D.C. government agencies are all subject to oversight by the D.C. Council, and there are oversight hearings every year, usually in February or March of each year. At that oversight hearing, Stephanie testified regarding the funding for the grandparent subsidy where there's still a funding shortage for that program and advocated for that to be fully funded. It's now been almost two years that there's been a waiting list. She also testified about child fatality review and the reporting on that with respect to the internal child fatality reporting by child and family services agency. And finally, she talked about kinship diversion or hidden foster care, which we've spoken about in our podcast before. But just as a reminder, kinship diversion occurs when the FSA get a call regarding an allegation of child abuse or neglect. They go out to the scene and determine that the child is unsafe. But the situation in the home is unsafe, and the child cannot remain safely in the home, even with services. So they need to find another safe place for the child to be. They identify a relative or godparent, family, friend, somebody to come in, take that child into their physical custody, and they arrange for that to happen. And may or may not enter into an agreement between the parent and this relative, And once the child is, quote, safely with the relative, CFSA will close its case and no longer be involved with the family.
1: Uh That sounds so innocuous, but it's not. What's really happening is CFSA is denying services to families that they're obligated by law to provide and denying benefits to children and families that they're obligated by law to provide. And they're doing it all in the name of family empowerment and supposedly allowing families to make their own decisions. But it's all done coercively under threat of removing the children from the parents and placing them with strangers. They never tell these relatives that they can be foster parents to these children and that these resources, these services and benefits are available to them. It's really insidious.
0: Well, and it's important to remember in the context of there not being a grandparent subsidy available to these caregivers if they take in a child now because of the funding problem. So that just leads to even more issues as far as these relatives being able to provide a safe and stable home for the children they take
1: in. There's so many layers to this. And
0: just... To dovetail back to our federal cases, that's really the crux of our federal cases. We believe it's not only discriminatory but illegal for CFSA to do this because under federal and state law, when a child welfare agency arranges for a child to live away from their parent, to be separated from their parent, that requires certain due process and other procedures to ensure that that separation is number one appropriate. And child welfare agencies are required by law to follow rigorous procedures when separating children from their parents, including a judicial determination approving the separation, a plan of care for the child, services for the parents to address their problems and be reunified with their children if possible, lawyers for the child and parents at no cost, and a foster care subsidy to help pay for the children's essential needs. None of these things happen in hidden foster care. So we testified on this issue, and so did Children's Law Center and other advocates. And as a result, it got some attention from the chair of the Human Services Committee that conducts the oversight hearing of CFSA, which is Chairperson Nado, And she asked, CFSA about this policy and about how it's implemented.
1: Can I just so say what that for Tomato is the hardest person working council member I have ever seen. I mean, whether you agree with her policies or don't, and I would say as a general matter we pretty much do, she works so hard. Agreed. And
0: she seems to get issues that are really difficult, like this issue, It's really difficult to get your arms around because of all of the different layers and all of the different issues. It's not a simple area to understand. And she really gets it, and she really followed up on the issues that the advocates were raising. So what we thought would be helpful today would be to... Have you listened to the government testimony regarding this issue where Council Member Nadeau asked Director Brenda Donald, the Director of CFSA, and her Deputy Director Robert Matthews under oath about kinship diversion, and we can also listen to their answers. And what we thought we would do is stop at various intervals in the testimony to provide our thoughts on their answers so that you can get a full understanding of the issue. Here we go.
1: According to a FOIA request submitted by advocacy groups, there's been at least one diversion since July of 2020, um, and other advocacy groups have been working with other youth who were
2: reportedly diverted. Can you say to date how many youth have been diverted? Uh, we've had one, one child diverted. Okay. So Council member, can, you, can, can we underscore that? Because there was quite a bit of testimony earlier about this guy, I wrote down the term pervasive and, and, and like widespread use of diversion. and we have one child who was diverted.
0: So I think we wanted to comment on the one child was diverted because that is not our understanding of how many children have been diverted. We know from our work on the ground of at least four children that were diverted since July of 2020 when a new diversion policy was implemented where they supposedly track diversion because they never did before. And we only see some portion of all cases. So there are probably are more. So that raises an issue of how is CFSA identifying diversion how are you tracking it and how is the data being inputted into the CFSA systems in that they think there's only one diversion but we know of at least four.
1: You know Marley to my mind, it's they either can't count or they're not telling the truth. And I think that both Brenda Donald and Robert Matthews can count to five.
0: Well, there also could be an issue with how and in what manner they're training their staff as to how to record diversion. And as we talked about before, it is confusing. In the past, they would put it down as a safety plan for the child to safely live with a relative. It's possible that social workers might still be putting it down as that, even though it really is the same thing and not categorizing it as a diversion. I don't know what's going on, but in any event, I don't think we can rely on the data that CFSA is putting out as to keeping
1: track of the number of diversions. Well, you've called it a data integrity problem before, Marla, and I know that that's a term of art, and I think it is absolutely true that there's a data integrity problem, but I think the problem underlying it is a people integrity problem that's showing up in the data. Well,
0: I guess maybe at some point we'll find out the real reason, but in any event, the numbers aren't right. So let's keep
2: listening. And we think that there's the conflation of understanding about when relatives are, take care of their children in order to provide a safe, environment for them and we think it's really important to put that in perspective right and that first as you know we have the grandparent caregivers program the close relatives caregivers program but together that's under a thousand kids who are being cared for by their relatives through those programs right in the city I think the a report a few years ago was there are at least 10,000 thousand 10, mm-hmm. who are being cared for by their relatives 10, who don't even who are not even part of the child welfare system and shouldn't be, right? Because long before there was formal foster care, families took care of kids and they still do. So there's a real disconnect. And this is where there is a philosophical difference uh, that, um, where if we can, if a family comes to our attention and sometimes they don't even, it's a circumstance that may be, um, an accident, an arrest, um, hospitalization, and that child is without a caretaker, that's not a neglect situation. That is a situation where a child needs a caretaker. Now, absent someone stepping up and being able to care for that child, then of course we're gonna have to step in. But if families are available, then that's appropriate. And not all of those families are eligible for one of our subsidy programs i mean if that happened in my family your family we, we wouldn't be eligible right
0: so i think there are a number of things here when they're talking about how only one thousand or less than a thousand kids are receiving the grandparent and caregiver subsidies and there's nine thousand or ten thousand i think i think our understanding might be more like nine thousand but in any event children that are being cared for by relatives I think it's not necessarily accurate to say that the remaining 8 or 9,000 children are not involved in the child welfare system because again they've never counted how many children are diverted and have been involved in the child welfare system that are now living with relatives. So we don't know how many of that 9 or 10,000 children have been involved in the child welfare system. We also know that there are families that have applied and can't get the grandparent subsidy, plus we have a waiting list, plus there's many people still in the city, even with our educational programs, that don't know about the caregiver program or aren't eligible because they took in a D.C. child, but they live in PG County. So I don't think that that data point is accurate either.
1: You're right, Marla. There's so much to unpack in those statements and the problem is with conflating all those groups of people together is is it hides the fact that services and benefits are being denied to a subset of that group of people who are legally entitled to them when we talk about 9 or 10,000 kids who are being cared for by relatives in DC Brenda Donald is correct that some of that group, the families made arrangements for the relatives to care for those children without CFSA ever being involved. And we don't have a problem with that. That's totally appropriate. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem comes when CFSA is involved and doesn't follow the right procedures and doesn't provide the benefits that people are entitled to and doesn't provide the services that children and families need. And by conflating the group of people where CFSA makes those arrangements outside of the law with the group of people where families have made those arrangements without CFSA being involved, it's watering down or dumbing down the issue of CFSA not following the law and not doing what it's supposed to do.
0: And I think the other piece that she raised was, you know, if there is an accident or something that happens to a parent, that's not considered neglect. And so, you know, if a family member steps up, of course that child should go with the family member and we shouldn't bring, you know, a neglect case against that parent. And I think even though we actually... From a legal, technical perspective, neglect is defined to include when a parent is not able to care for their child, even if it is accidental, you know, there's a car accident. The parent has a stroke and can't care for the child, but is otherwise not neglectful of their child and takes good care of their child. While under the current D.C. law, that would still be considered neglect, I don't think we would be making a fuss. We wouldn't be filing
1: federal lawsuits if those were the situations where CFSA is doing this. If CFSA was bending the rules in situations where parents were unable to care for their children for a very brief period of time and they were helping relatives step in, while not technically legal, nobody would care that they were doing that. That wouldn't be a problem. But that's not what we are seeing happening day in and day out. What we see day in and day out is parents who have been repeatedly involved with CFSA again and again and again and children bounced around without services or benefits again and again and again because of intractable and long standing problems mainly dealing with substance use or un or undertreated mental health issues or even most often a combination of both where we have folks who aren't getting the mental health treatment they need and are self-medicating with street drugs, PCP in particular being just a huge problem that ends up exacerbating the mental health problems that are being self-medicated. And both addiction and these mental health problems are progressive. So the longer CFSA denies these benefits and services to these families, the worse the underlying problems get and the less likely that they can be addressed and that children can be successfully reunified with their parents. And
0: don't get us wrong, we want children to be with their parents too. If it's safe for them
1: to be with their parents. Who do the relative caregivers who we represent. They always would prefer that the parent be able to address their problems and successfully parent their own children. It's not like they want to steal these children from their parents. They're just willing to step up when the children are in desperate need and the parents are unable.
0: Right, and let's not forget about the children. I think a lot of times we talk about not wanting to police parents or police families, and we agree with that. We don't want to do that unless it's absolutely necessary. What I think gets forgotten in that discussion is what's happening to children if they remain in an abusive or neglectful home without anybody stepping in to make sure that that they're safe. And I think we all know about ACEs and how Long-term trauma can affect the developing brain of children and can lead to worse outcomes for them as they grow up, and we do see a fair amount of children that have been subjected to trauma in their homes or been bounced from home to home have various either intellectual disabilities or mental health issues, and so then the cycle just starts over again. And if we want to ensure these children have opportunities to grow and thrive and have opportunities in their future, we need to invest in them today through supporting the parents and supporting the kinship relatives that are taking these children in and following the law. There's a reason there's a law. You know, people get all worked up about separating children at the border. What about separating children within the border? I think people should be in an uproar about that, separating children from their parents without any due process or any supports or services or
1: plan to reunify them if it's safe to do so. And for the uninitiated, ACEs is adverse child events. And basically, the more of those you have as a kid, the more trauma child experiences, the more likely the child is to have worse outcomes.
0: And the same with respect to poverty. Poverty has been found to result in worse outcomes for children, and that's why the grandparent subsidy and, and the foster care subsidy are so important to stabilize families. The longer a child's in poverty, there has been found to be a dose response as far as the outcomes for them developmentally, educationally, et cetera. So, again, let's invest now and make sure that these children are safe and that they have the opportunities and that we don't have to pay for it later. People who say
1: money isn't important have plenty of it. Money is important. It buys housing security. It buys food. It buys clothing. It buys safety. Agreed. All right, let's keep listening.
2: So the, the notion that Children who are diverted to, or families who step in in lieu of a child coming into foster care, is one that is entirely consistent with what we believe is right for families. And that, but the notion that we should bring children into foster care so that families can be licensed and receive foster care payments to take care of the child, we, we fundamentally disagree with that.
0: So I think that's actually a great segue for what we were talking about before.
1: As you know, Marla, our clients are, the vast majority of them are African-American women living in Ward 7 and 8 on the the edge of poverty themselves even before they take in these grandchildren and other relative children who need their help. And to say that licensing these women as foster parents is quote-unquote just to give them the foster care subsidy, it's not only inaccurate, it's offensive.
0: These women
1: take in these children and they need help. They are stepping up, but they need help paying for things like a bigger housing unit. If they're in a two-bedroom and they take in multiple children of mixed ages and genders, from a two-bedroom to a three-bedroom. They need to be able to pay for the food that these children eat. And as the point you have made so correctly many times, Marla, is that the biggest expenses are right up front. A lot of times they need to buy beds. They need to buy beddings. Sometimes these kids, in fact most frequently, these kids arrive with nothing but the clothes on their back. If it's winter, they need coats. They need boots. I guess that leads to another issue, which is that when they come to the
0: relative's home, they typically don't come with any documents. So they don't have birth certificates, they don't have Medicaid cards, they don't have Social Security cards, and there's all these barriers to access public benefits like TANF if you don't have documentation and other information. So that makes it very difficult and time-consuming. Months can go by before a relative... Is eligible for TANF to get that benefit and may not even be able to get it at all, depending on the relationship to the child and the documentation they're able to obtain. And in a COVID world, they need to do that all online, which we've been helping our clients do that, but there may be others out there that don't know how or don't know that they can even apply for these things. And so you're just setting up these families for failure. I also wanted to mention that it's always seemed like when we've had conversations with Director Donald and other people at CFSA about this issue, because we did try to advocate on this issue for many years before he filed the federal lawsuits, but with little movement, if any, is this conception that advocates like us just want to put kids in foster care so the relatives can get the subsidy, and that's not at all what we're talking about here. We don't have an agenda to get kids in foster care and and get money for relatives by doing that. We're asking the agency to follow the law and protect children and families by doing what they're supposed to do, which is in these kind of situations where the child cannot remain in the home, there's a pervasive issue that's been going on for a long time and the agency knows it's not going to be fixed tomorrow or in a week, that you provide the scaffolding and the support for those families and follow the law and the due process requirements and pay the subsidy to make sure that those children and those families can provide what those children
1: need. Right. By framing this discussion as do we place children in foster care or do we leave families intact is a false choice. It's not what's happening. CSSA has already made the decision in these cases that the child can't safely remain in the home with the parent. The question is, is the child going to be separated from the parent with services and supports and benefits, or are the children going to be denied the services and benefits to which they are entitled, and then the rest of the family, the The parents who need services to address the problem that caused the need for the separation to begin with, and the relative caregiver who needs additional supports and help with practical matters like getting documents and housing and food, are those folks just going to be left to fend for themselves? But by framing this falsely, CFSA is absolving itself of its legal responsibilities to provide those services and benefits. And we just think that's wrong.
0: And let's not forget that the initial goal of foster care is always reunification with the parent and to provide services to that parent so they can be safely reunified. And then the second goal is to ensure permanency for the child. So if for some reason the parent can't be safely reunified after a reasonable period of time, then the child can have permanency through guardianship, which does not terminate the parental rights but provides for a more permanent option for the relative caregiver and a subsidy. Or in the unusual situation where the parent isn't able to parent on a permanent basis, the child can be adopted by that relative. So, again, the goals are reunification first, and if that can't happen after many reasonable efforts have been made, than permanency for the child. None of those things are available in hidden foster care. So let's keep listening.
2: We only bring children into foster care after a process, after an
1: investigation,
2: Mm -hmm. after substantiation, after determination that that child has no safe place to be and that whatever um, cures and safety planning is needed for that family are not appropriate and that is determined by a court. Those are very specifically. that's when we would bring a child into foster care, and if a relative is available, which is our first goal, kin first, then we're going to quickly try to license that—that—that's that, you know, the license that relative, and then they would get paid. But there's there's no legal rationale for us to bring a child into foster care so that we can pay their relatives, and there's, that's that's morally that's
0: so and technically that's not something we would do all right so she thinks it's immoral and unethical to do what we were just talking about
1: well the constitution of the united states and the laws of the united states and the district of columbia disagree and with all respect to brenda donald she doesn't get to decide her morals and her ethics are more important than constitutional rights and legal responsibilities. And it's interesting that she
0: talks about there's a process
1: that they have to go through for a child to enter foster care, yet
0: they just decide not to go through that process. She's very well aware of what the process is.
1: Right, and it is there for a reason.
0: And that's a wrap of part one of our analysis of the DC. And Family Services Agency Oversight Hearing testimony regarding kinship diversion, also known as hidden foster care. Join us next week for the continuation of this analysis. Have a good week.